The statements and views expressed on the Voices and Vulnerability. Uh, the statements and views expressed on the Voices and Vulnerability podcast are those of the speakers alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of Emory University School of Law or its affiliates. Welcome to Voices and Vulnerability, where we interview the scholars shaping vulnerability theory in the legal world and beyond. We're here to learn about the transformational potential of vulnerability theory and how it is already shaping public policy and discourse around the world. I am your host, Mangala Kinesen. Our guest today is Jennifer Hickey, who happens to be the guest host of last month's episode. It's a pleasure to have you back, Jennifer. Thanks, it's nice to be back. Jennifer is a postdoctoral fellow of the VHC at Emory Law. And today we're gonna be chatting a little bit about her journey. She's had quite an interesting and varied career in the legal world and some of the reasons that she's had and her experiences as an attorney, a legislative advocate, a postdoctoral fellow, and a professor, right? Yeah, a co-teacher, yeah. A co-teacher, a co-teacher. Not a full-fledged professor yet, but that is the goal. <laughs> Not yet, soon, soon. One day I'll introduce you here as Professor Jennifer Hickey. That would be great. <laughs> <laughs> So can you tell me a little bit about your career? You started, did you start off as an attorney? Uh, no, actually, I was a software engineer uh, for a little over 10 years, actually, um, right out of school with a computer science degree. Um, and I really enjoyed the technical aspects of that job. Uh, but there were uh, certain, I guess, like with any career, there were certain challenges. And, and in particular, I think I kind of reached a place where I you know, wanted to do something that I felt was affecting change more, getting more involved with social justice, um, having a little bit more control, I guess, over uh, what my contribution, how my contributions were used, essentially. Um, so I was in a fortunate place where I could kind of make a career pivot um, in my 30s. So I went to law school, um, which I graduated in I was supposed to graduate with the class of 2017, but I took an extra semester because I had my son. Uh, so I also had the fun experience of being pregnant in law school, um, which is, I feel like became more common as I, as I went through. Like every year I saw a few extra pregnant students. So I, I do think that there's maybe, you know, a movement possibly <laughs> of women realizing that they can, they can do those things. Um, but obviously it was extra challenging, but got through uh, with just a semester off. Um, and then upon graduation, I had a very young child um, and I had always wanted a career, you know, in public interest law. Like I went into law school saying I want to work in civil rights. That was kind of specifically, you know, I'd always been a big supporter of ACLU. That was kind of specifically what I was thinking about. And in particular, women's rights. Um, I've kind of always identified with feminism from a young age. I uh, have my mom to thank for that. Uh, so to me, that's always been an important aspect of things. And that was an important part of my identity as a software engineer, I think as well, was being one of the few women in the room. Um, so kind of moving forward to where I felt like I could get on the sort of the other side of things and, and advance change for women uh, more broadly through the law. Uh, but when I graduated, I realized that I couldn't work an 80 hour a week firm job <laughs> with, with my son um, and I didn't want to. Uh, and so I was kind of looking around for ways that I could work part-time, which is a really unusual thing for a new attorney to try to do. Uh, so I actually ended up opening up my own law firm 
which, you know, I don't recommend necessarily doing right out of law school, uh, but I had a lot of other civil rights attorneys in the area who were so helpful, including professors that I'd had at Emory. Um, you know, I had a lot of assistance, which was just wonderful. Uh, so doing direct services, civil rights litigation in this area, unfortunately, is predominantly police misconduct work. So I sort of almost fell into that uh, when I started my firm and did that for a couple of years um, before pivoting again and deciding on an academic career and, and seeking out. Um, I sought out Professor Feynman specifically to work with the Vulnerability Project because I had taken her seminar at Emory Law and just really the themes of vulnerability theory resonated with me so much. And I found myself wanting to apply them as I was litigating and, and you know, experiencing some dissatisfaction uh, with the sort of um, individual rights perspective of, of civil rights litigation um, and, and wanting very much to engage with the theory again and to think about state responsibility more broadly and social harm and social justice more broadly. Um, and also just because I thought an academic career sounded interesting. And so here I am um, after my second year as a postdoc with the, the vulnerability project. And then that brings me up to my career journey so far. <laughs> so how was being in law school while you were pregnant? Was it, did you feel like you were treated differently than the other students? Were there I was other a things? little bit actually, but in a, in a good way. Um, yeah, no, I definitely feel like the professors were very accommodating, um, which was nice. Uh, you know, I think so often, and this is a big theme that we work with the vulnerability theory, right? Is so often, uh, these institutions don't reflect our family lives. And it's almost like we have to pretend that we don't have children when we go into a, a school or a workplace. And I didn't, obviously you can't do that for one when you're pregnant, like you physically can't, <laughs> can't pretend like children are, are not involved in that scenario, uh, at least in later stage pregnancy. Um, so in some ways it's, it's interesting, you know, to sort of be making that announcement to the world um, in a place, I think traditionally where we don't always talk about the families that are at home when we're in the building studying law um, or working. So I think, you know, it was good, I guess, in a way to sort of see uh, how people would accommodate that situation and understand the, you know, the work-life trade-offs. I, I don't want to say balance because I feel like that work-life balance term is way overused and, <laughs> and implicates some, some individual responsibility that I'm not totally comfortable with, but <laughs> understanding that there are, you know, are a lot of things going on in a person's life besides just what happens in law school. Um, yeah. But I understand, you know, that you also have an interesting career journey to get to this point. Can you, can you tell us about, about your career journey? <laughs> um, mine was a lot more traditional. Um, I went from undergrad, you know, studying poli-sci and international studies, where I was more involved with social justice movements to Emory Law. And I had a similar ideological bent as you. you know, I was a feminist. I wanted to affect change. In my undergraduate experience, I had done some lobbying with a couple of orgs. And what I kept seeing was that even if you have legislative change, it doesn't mean much unless there are people to implement those policies on the ground. And so mine was like 
a little bit the inverse of yours. So when I went to law school, I thought, okay, I'm going to do public interest law because we need lawyers on the ground who are doing this work. During law school and all of my internships, I saw that that might not actually be the case just because although, you know, individual attorneys do have huge impacts on their clients and are able to make enormous change in the lives of every person that they interact with, there is a systemic issue, right? With, the, with a lot of the cases that you're working with, as an attorney, there's only so much you can do. So I actually became pretty disillusioned with the nonprofit world, with the legal system, and I decided to teach piano for a while. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. What, what, <laughs> what ages did you teach? I taught all ages. My youngest student was four and a half. My eldest students were in their 70s. Um, but it was fantastic. And I learned so much more about myself. Being a teacher teaches you so much about yourself and about other people and about the tenderness that exists in every human being who you interact with. There's so much there to see when you're meeting with the same person every week and what you're focusing on is developing their relationship with music. Because essentially when you're teaching piano, that's what you're doing, particularly with younger children. You're developing, you're helping them, you're guiding them into, you're, you're really fostering their relationship with music. They're, you're encouraging their understanding of it, which I think is something that's already quite innate to humans in general. And you're also teaching them the language that we as humans have learned and developed to talk about music and to express things to each other and to express emotions to each other, which is really important, I think, for human growth and development, just the ability to express yourself and to understand other people and be understood through any particular, through any medium. I was a little bit off track. <laughs> that was awesome though, I love that. Like, <laughs> so how did you end up with, with the vulnerability project then? <laughs> so, you know, I, I taught piano for a few years and I loved it so much and all of my students were amazing. Um, but after a while, I felt like I was having a pretty good time. And I just, you know, 2016 came and went and I felt like I needed to be more involved with the community. I felt as though I had turned inwards. I mean, teaching piano, you are still obviously involved with the community in a very real and like emotionally intimate way. Um, you know, you're a part of your students' lives. You're one of the like people who they see every single week. So you're like that, that kind of stable, secure interaction. By I felt as though I had turned my back on a responsibility that I think all of us have to society 
And that varies person by person, you know, like the amount of responsibility that you, that you think you have and the skill set and capacity that you have to influence the world that we live in. And of course, I was doing that as a piano teacher, but because I had a law degree and because I had the skill set that I do, I felt a bit of an imperative to do more. And I want to be specific in particular that that is not something that was guilt driven, because I think there's an issue with like guilt driven advocacy or guilt driven activism. And that's not what it was. It was more like potential that I felt had been ignored for some time. And so I talked to some friends about what I wanted to do. And one of them sent me information about an opening at the VHC. And she was like, this seems like it's right up your alley. Turned out it was. That's how I ended up here. That's awesome. You actually said a couple of things that that resonated with me um, that I, I wanted to mention too, that I think also aptly define some of my experiences. Um, you know, when you were talking about how lawyers can only do so much within the system, I think that's one of the reasons that I'm so attracted to vulnerability theory, because when you say that, you know, I instantly think about state responsibility, right? And about just looking at like the wider web of social institutions that are involved in our clients' lives, right? There's not just this one single legal problem they have that you can help them with. You know, there's just a wide range of circumstances, um, you know, and areas in which they need resilience, right? That one individual and one individual in the legal system in particular, perhaps, uh, can't necessarily provide them. And so I think that kind of, you know, feeling like there's only so much you can do is, is something, you know, that I definitely felt also. Um, I also thought it was interesting that you, you know, went into law school wanting to, you know, kind of enforce legislation, I guess. <laughs> um, I mean, because, you know, it is important, especially as a civil rights attorney, like what, you know, one of the goals and, and things that civil rights attorneys should do is to hold the government accountable, right? I mean, you know, laws are implemented and, you know, they do need to be enforced. Um, but again, you know, it, it, I guess it depends on the legislation as to who you think should be doing the enforcing. Um, and again, being a huge proponent of state responsibility, you know, I tend to think that that's not necessarily individual attorneys in, in ideal circumstances. Um, but I found that interesting as well. And then I guess the third thing you said uh, was just about social responsibility. Um, I think, you know, I feel that very strongly and, and that is certainly something I think most people actually feel, um, you know, whether we're skeptical of that claim or not. I, I do believe that there are, you know, the majority of people in this world do feel compelled, um, not necessarily out of guilt, to give something back to society. And lawyers are, you know, privileged in that way. We do have a lot of tools and a lot of knowledge at our disposal to affect real change. Um, so I never thought about, you know, after I went to law school and I, and I, you know, tried solo practice. Um, I never thought about giving up on law necessarily. Um, you know, I just thought there needs to be maybe a different place for me personally in it. Um, but I do think that lawyers play a huge, have a huge role to play, uh, even though they obviously need help from the state <laughs> to do it. <laughs> and nowhere is that more clear than say like 
a public defender, right? <laughs> I mean, their jobs. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That's such a worthy job, but that is definitely not something I think I could take on. They just, they have so much struggle. <laughs> uh, they're, they're so unsupported by the state. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, one thing I love about vulnerability theory and working in this space is that we talk so much about and theorize so much about how the world can be better and how we can change things to be better in ways that I think could actually be effective. You know, like it's, it's a very different approach and ethos. And I really, I really appreciate that. And I do hope that, you know, as we continue to do these podcasts and our, our blog posts and everything and, and keep having our talks and our workshops that more people will keep talking about it. And I think that post pandemic, I've been seeing a lot of articles and hearing a lot more discussions that are close to vulnerability theory. Have you noticed that too, Jennifer? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just natural, you know, given the failed state response to the pandemic to, to take a look at how kind of the narrative of individual responsibility has just been such a disaster in, in the pandemic context. I think a lot of people are kind of naturally thinking, you know, maybe we need to rethink what we expect of the state and what we expect of individuals. And so, yeah, I do feel like I'm reading things that are kind of close to, to vulnerability theory. Um, but, you know, you also touch on a really interesting point, um, you know, about kind of idealism versus realism. Uh, Cause I feel like in my career trajectory, you know, one of the reasons, one of the narratives I had early on was, you know, I need to do uh, the realistic day-to-day -day work. Like I think you said kind of boots on the ground day-to-day -day kind of thing as well, right? And so I had this idea, I think, that just comes from social narratives. Like I still hear it occasionally from people, right? That um, this kind of notion that the idealism of academia is somehow not as important as the realistic day-to-day -day work and that these were just, you know, ideas that almost like idealism, I guess, in a negative connotation where I, I tend to like to think of idealism as a positive thing. <laughs> um, but for so many people, it's almost like a pejorative. And I think that I, I kind of took that in for a long time in, in not pursuing academic work, um, despite the fact that, you know, I've always thought it would be interesting and, and, you know, the teaching and the research and the writing really compel me. I feel, I feel at home in this space. And like, I personally am thriving. Um, doing this type of work, but I think I rejected it for so long because I didn't, I was almost in a sense taught that there was not value in these, you know, high ideals or these theories or thinking about things. Um, and that actually reminds me of one thing that, uh, you know, Professor Feynman said when I was in her seminar that I have now repeated to our students over the past couple of years. Uh, and it always resonates with someone as it did for me, you know, was that there's value in asking questions um, and, and having, hearing that was just such an aha moment for me, you know, to realize that like it was, I was providing something of value by just questioning the way that things work and thinking about things in high level theoretical terms. And, um, and as you said, I think we have a really unique opportunity to combine kind of that idealism and realism because pandemic case in point, right? There are very specific you know, issues and situations where vulnerability theory can be applied to affect real change. 
Uh, so it's really, it's great to be, you know, working with something that's sort of at the intersection of, of that. Yeah, and I think that in addition to asking all these questions, folks are also realizing how interconnected we are. There was this really interesting article in Eon Magazine about how emotional regulation is something that we as a society think is individualistic and that should be completely, it, that it should be done by one person on their own and that it's not something that anyone external to you has an impact on. But this article was saying that emotional regulation is actually socially done. Hmm. Yeah, which I thought was so interesting. Yeah, and it, it talked about how, <laughs> yeah, I'll send it your way. It was fascinating. It talked about how even emotional regulation, which is something that's so necessary for just mental health and just like the average human to function normally and healthily, right? Even emotional regulation requires other people to be effective. Mm -hmm. So it the, the examples that I gave were like, an interaction you have with someone like checking out at the grocery store or something, just someone asking how your day was. And if you say no, that it wasn't, that it wasn't great, they might say, oh, I'm sorry, you're having a bad day. And just the example of that very brief, relatively impersonal human interaction can help you regulate. Wow. Yeah, which, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which I thought was fascinating and really creates it doesn't create, but I think it, I think recognizing that would really let us see a lot more value in each other, like in strangers as well, just the people who we talk to and don't really know. Yeah, it's really interesting. I've been thinking kind of along those lines, but more, I guess, in terms of like thinking about empathy and um, how a lot of times, especially with children, um, everything, our approach to children is so behavior based, right? Um, we don't necessarily think about their emotional um, regulation. And yet so much of the behaviors that they exhibit that we might think of as problem problematic, I'm using air quotes, but you can't tell because I'm on a podcast. Um, <laughs> but, but so much of these behaviors that we, we tend to focus on trying to eliminate are, are just a byproduct of their emotional state. And we don't, as a society, even think about it necessarily like that. Um, so I've been thinking along those lines a lot about the importance of emotional regulation in general, as opposed to behavioral based approaches. Uh, but that's really interesting to think about the social component of emotional regulation too. Yeah, there was one of the examples in the article talked about child soldiers coming home. Mm. And that example was used to sort of demonstrate how there's like in certain in certain healing traditions, there's a shared symbolism. There's like a shared language of symbolism between the healer and the person who needs help. And what the healer does is they trans, they take the person's pain or whatever problem the person is having, transform it into a symbol and then release or dissolve that symbol. And so they are like symbolically transmuting or like dissolving whatever it is. And so when these child soldiers would come home in certain communities, the healers would like bandage their heads and their hearts to like symbolize healing those things. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then they would do like rituals, like they would, they would symbolically remove all the guilt and the shame 
and like the anger from the children as part of the healing process. And it was done in a community space so that it would have that social impact as well for people who were like scared of the children to come home because they were coming like, you know, they were coming oh, home wow. as child soldiers. That's a powerful example. Wow. Yeah. 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 I mean, it, it totally applies to um, how we parent and, and deal with children as well. There's this strange, I know one of the folks at a workshop, I think it was a couple of years ago, talked about the value of emotion in um, in the classroom. Do you remember that? No, I'm not sure I do remember that one, but I, I can see that there is value in that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, it's definitely something I've been thinking about as I've been teaching because I, I hadn't had any prior teaching experience before starting this postdoc a couple of years ago. What is um, that like for you? You know, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's something that I've been kind of pushing a little bit um, just in my own kind of career trajectory thinking about because um, it's interesting how in a lot of times we think because someone is an expert on a particular subject matter, they're, they know how to teach it. <laughs> I know that I cannot be the only academic who has ever said this. So I think I feel okay saying it, um, that I did feel in a sense, uh, and I've learned so much on the job and obviously, you know, I'm co-teaching with professor Feynman. So, um, I'm learning from an amazing source, but, you know, definitely felt going in a little unprepared just because I had no teaching experience. Um, and obviously, you know, I guess teaching semi-adult children, (laughs) uh, is different than actual children. Um, but yeah, you know, it is interesting how much you do have to take into account, you know, your emotional state, their emotional state, what's going on in the world. And again, I think teaching during a pandemic and having that be one of my, you know, initial experiences. I mean, we had, uh, I think when I started, we had about nine or 10 weeks in the classroom before we moved out because of COVID. That was my first semester teaching. Um, and so, you know, Obviously, the technical aspects of adjusting to online teaching are something, but that's, you know, I have a technical background, so that that wasn't as big of a, an issue for me. Um, but the interactive aspects, you know, and, and also just how thinking about how the circumstances outside of the, you know, classroom, whether it's virtual or real, are impacting the students. Um, you know, so much, I feel like, of our teaching experience is that, well, how do we get them comfortable enough to feel like they can talk about what's going on and, you know, not even just how, what they're going through might impact what grade we give them or anything like that, but just in terms of like taking care of their, you know, mental and emotional health is, is such an important aspect, I think, of teaching. Um, And that was, I guess, not surprising for me. (laughs) I mean, I have had professors that have cared about my, my mental or emotional health, but you know, we've had a lot of students who, um, you know, seem very grateful to, to have professors who kind of take that approach and, and seem like they actually care about them. <laughs> um, and that's, that's been a much bigger part of it than I, than I realized it was going to be. And again, like I said, I think, you know, starting during a pandemic also kind of colors that to some extent. I mean, <laughs> this is like, obviously one of the worst things these students are probably going to be going through. And, and so maybe it's not this emotional (laughs) all the time, like in a, you know, a non-pandemic situation. So I'm looking forward to finding out if that's true actually. Um, And in fact, uh, you know, as far as teaching is concerned, I am 
you know, that is kind of my long-term goal at this point. You know, I would like to, to become a full professor and be able to teach. And, and to that end, I am looking to expand my teaching options by starting a PhD program in the fall. Um, so I'm going to be attending UGA and, and getting a PhD in political science um, with the hopes of, you know, being able to teach undergrads. <laughs> um, I'm also going for a graduate certificate in women's studies. So um, I might be able to teach that in the future as well. Um, but yeah, it's gonna be really interesting to compare the undergrad teaching experience with the law school teaching experience. Uh, I'm excited to kind of see what the differences are there and then to get more experience with that as well. Yeah, that will be really exciting and congratulations. Thanks. Yeah, I was seeing the other day, I'm like, I must be one of the few people because I'm staying on with the vulnerability project another year as well. So I must be one of the few people who is going to be both a postdoc and a PhD candidate at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> That's a new, it's a very unique place to be. Yeah, sure. yeah, but I'm really happy and excited about it. Definitely. Yeah. While you were talking about the how emotional and how how emotional it was for teaching students during the pandemic and how how much you realized that you actually had a role to play is like in a way as an emotional caretaker which seems like a very extreme way to phrase it but I think there is a power dynamic and when there is you know with great power comes great responsibility you know I feel like because there's that power dynamic um y'all especially right now do have so much potential to impact their students ability to manage those things did you feel like you were an emotional caretaker at all <laughs> I guess I never thought of it in those terms exactly um but I, I did just sort of you know naturally you know I mean I cared about the students right so I, I kind of naturally I feel like I almost naturally took that role by the fact that I interacted with them on a weekly basis or more often than that if, if we were in office hours and and so you know you get to know the students and you care about them and you know it's obvious that like I said even in a non-pandemic situation you know law school's tough <laughs> and they're always going to be going through something um so yeah I guess I never really thought about it necessarily in those terms um but you know it was a it's a it's a role that I'm very happy to play you know I think I think that it's it can add a lot of value. And I also recognize, you know, our seminars are, you know, we're not doing the hundred people lecture classes, right? So we, in some ways have a unique opportunity with our, our classes because the seminars are structured to be smaller and more discussion-based. So those classes I think have a unique opportunity where we can really get to know the students, I think in a way that maybe is probably a lot more difficult when you are lecturing to literally a hundred students. Um, so I, I like that. And again, I'll be interested to see kind of the differences in that format versus some of the classes that I will be teaching eventually um, with the political science department as well. Yeah. I also wonder, I wonder whether any of that is gendered as far as like professors and caretaking goes. And also I'd like to know a little more about what made you decide that you did indeed want to end up being a professor. Yeah, so, um, well, I, I've always known, you know, even when I started litigating, I've always known that I enjoyed the research and writing aspect the most. Like going in right away, I was like, I will write a legal brief all day, every day. Loved it. Loved that part of it. Uh, the actual adversarial in the court, fighting it out with the other side and, and those types of things is not what I personally excel at uh, or 
you know, necessarily would want to do long-term. Um, I'm a little bit conflict avoidant. So, uh, so I kind of knew going in that I was going to enjoy the research and writing aspect of it. And, you know, when I first started, um, we weren't teaching any classes in the fall. So I immediately dove in writing my first law review article, uh, which I wrote about police misconduct, actually, since it was on my mind being uh, still a police misconduct attorney. Um, and, you know, academic writing was something I was actually relatively new to. Uh, we didn't do a lot of it in computer science. Uh, so that was, you know, getting my, my feet kind of wet with that and used to that and realizing how much I enjoyed that. And then moving into the spring and teaching, as I said before, was such an unknown for me. I didn't know if I was going to like it. My mom was an elementary school teacher growing up. Um, and I know she loved the job, but when you're at home and, you know, she comes home at the end of the day, you see mostly just the frustrations, <laughs> you know, cause you get home, you blow off steam. And, and so from where, even though like she loved the job and did it for, I think 30 ish years before she retired as a kid, my experience growing up was like, wow, this looks awful. <laughs> like she's, she seems unhappy, you know, just like, cause it, all you ever see is kind of the end of the day blowing off steam that anybody has with any job. Um, so I think I kind of was like, oh, you know, I'm not going to ever be a teacher. Uh, and again, like I said, obviously teaching young children is different. So um, realizing that I enjoyed that as well, like feeling a personal sense of satisfaction when I could tell that they had caught on and engaged with the material. I think that pretty much cemented it for me that, you know, that this is what I, I want to be doing right now. That's awesome. And that sounds so rewarding. I'm glad you have that experience. Yeah, thank you. And again, you know, I mean, it's, I think a personal, in some sense, it depends on your strengths and what you enjoy and your, and like, I know a lot of people who find a career in litigation very rewarding and I can see how that would be the case. Um, you know, it's just, again, depends on <laughs> who you are and, and what you enjoy doing. Mm -hmm. Well, we're almost out of time. What would you like listeners to remember about our interview today? Uh, you know what? I'm actually, I'm going to say, um, you never have to decide what you want to be when you grow up. Since, <laughs> since we spent a lot of time talking about careers, I, I just want to say that as, you know, one of the older students at law school, and now I'm sure that will be the case with my PhD as well. Um, and I, I tell this to my older stepson who's in college all the time, you know, cause he's like, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? And I'm like, just worry about what you're going to do next. You know, um, you don't have to pick one thing and stick with it forever. Uh, we evolve and change as human beings. And to the extent that you're able to, to move with that and, and try new things and do new things, you know, that's always something we can do. You know, I mean, I would have gotten a PhD at the age of 70. I mean, why not? <laughs> you know, we're always learning. Yeah. We're always doing new things. We're always growing. And so um, I think that's, that's the thing that I would want people to think about if they look at, you know, kind of my career journey and where I am right now is that you're, you're never too old <laughs> to do what you want to do. <laughs> well, that is an excellent takeaway. Thanks so much for sitting with me today, Jennifer. Thanks for having me. You can see this has been an episode of Voices and Vulnerability. Expect a new episode every month. If you like what you heard here, you can find us on Twitter at VHC Initiative and on Facebook at Vulnerability and the Human Condition. Thanks for tuning in.